decade, at least a year, <laughs> at least a year we could preach on Acts and have no problems. There's three or four things we could preach on just in each chapter. There's so much. And so the hardest thing as we plan these series is, is saying, okay, God, what, what are you trying to say to us as a church? And then what do we kind of weed out? Not because it's not good, but because this isn't quite the voice. And our goal is we're trying to hear really and listen into what God has to say. And so I got to say, I, I changed a little bit this morning because, and I want to give you hope. I came to encourage you this morning. Does anybody here want to be encouraged this morning? Right? Anybody here say, man, I'm ready for some encouragement in my week. And oftentimes I preach what I need. And so I said, man, I'm coming to encourage this week. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, I'm glad you came to church today. I'm really glad you came to church today. Come on. I'm glad you're here. Glad you came to church today. I'm here to bring you this morning what I, what I pray and believe is a message of hope in your life. And here is the title of the message this morning. Nothing is wasted. Yeah. Nothing is wasted. God can use everything in our lives and everything in your life this morning. Even tragedy. And as we'll read in a second, you'll see, even in a, one of the toughest things, God can use even the most brutal tragedy and the difficult things, not make them, but use them to do good things. And so I want to encourage you. And it's interesting as we look uh, through the scripture and we get to Acts 7 and 8, we see a really sad uh, scripture, uh, a sad story in the first Christian martyr of Stephen. And I got to say, even though this is a sad part of scripture, there is still an encouragement for you and I. Anytime we look at scripture, I think it's important that we look through the lens of what God's trying to say. And also, I'm trying to look through the lens of real, real life. Right. What are we really going through as a church when I meet with people? And, and I think we all know this, but life is not all rainbows. Right. Tragedy happens. Messes happen. Things happen. And so often uh, we come to church and the band is singing. It's the power of your presence. And we're trying to put on our good face. And we didn't do as many like jumpy songs, but let's say we did. Uh, you know, the, the what is it? Grace like a wave. Is that a grace like a wave? And everyone's clapping. Some people clapping on one and three, which should be a sin. And some people clapping on two and four, which is how you clap people. You clap on two and four, <laughs> or just clap on all of them just to be safe. Just hit them all. <laughs> no one's going to judge you, but we will judge you if you hit one and three. Um, <laughs> we, we can do this, guys. I believe in you. Um, but we come, and we, we put on a face, and we begin to kind of get in the mode of, like, trying to be happy. And we're looking around, and we look at other people, like, how are people just so into this right now? Because I'm not feeling any of this. I'm not feeling grace like a wave. I'm feeling emptiness like a desert, and I'm struggling to feel this. And so we come up against this so often in church, and that is why we'll hear phrases like, oh, we're playing church, or we're playing like church. And can I tell you, when you do not feel it, when you are facing tragedy, when you are facing things, that is exactly the time to be here. If you came in and you had a rough week, and you're trying to figure out, like, how do I... Um, work through what, what they're singing and really try to get into it and are not feeling, can I tell you, that emotion of wrestling through that and, and trying to say, I, I want to be close, but I'm struggling with my real life. Can I tell you, that's just being normal. So if you're feeling that way, like I've been through a lot of things this morning and I'm coming and, I'm, and I want to praise the Lord, I want to lift him up, but, but I'm struggling with that, that. It's not playing church to just admit that things are a bit messy sometimes. And can I tell you that this morning, this is a messy message for a messy church full of messy people who have to deal with messy lives, but we have a good God. And so I'm going to encourage you this morning that as you walk through these things and as we look at Stephen, that nothing is wasted. So often I think we look at our lives and we say, is what I'm going through going to be worth it? Right? Does, has anyone ever thought that? It would be so much better in my life to, to go through this if I knew it was going to be for something, yeah. used for something, going to be for the good of something. I could really make it if it was for something. Man, this is every week someone brings me water and puts it way over here. This is great. Thank you. 
So this morning I want to give you encouragement. For those of you who have been following through Acts, um, I'm skipping really from where we were in Acts 4 almost all the way to Acts 7. But I want to kind of explain why other than there's just not time. Is I think there's this setup really in the church to, to go through this process, to go through what's happening. And so um, every week we put out, Gianna wonderfully puts out a scripture to be reading along with us. I know some of, you, some of us in this church, you just have the blessing of just now coming into the family of God or really never um, having dove all the way into scripture. And so you're like, okay, where do I start? So we've been putting out on social media and I think maybe email. I'll lose track a little bit. I'm still new with this. Um, we put out the scripture that we're reading together in the hopes that when we gather together, either in our small groups that are starting this week or in our uh, on Sundays, that we can just open up scripture. Those things would be revealed, but that we would already be in them together. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're a person that's wanting to read the word, maybe you haven't dove in, I just encourage you. We're in the book of Acts. Follow along with us. But what we've been seeing is in chapter four of Acts, everything was going awesome. By, by awesome, I mean like super awesome. Like if what was happening in Acts 4 happened in this church, like we would be like all, all over. Like we'd be in the news, just thousands of people coming to know the Lord. Thousands of people are in growing in this. And so things are going well too because of who they are. And I talked a couple weeks ago about the pillars that they began to put in place. And one of those was generosity. And they began to give. And so chapter 4, we see a guy by the name of Barnabas who, who gives abundantly. He sells his land and gives all that he has. Then in chapter 5, things kind of start to change for the church. And I had alluded to that a couple weeks ago that eventually the honeymoon season kind of ends. And everything was going perfect. And all of a sudden, this conflict comes in. And what happens in chapter 5, and I'm just summing it up for you so you know where we are when we get to where we need to be, is chapter 5, all of a sudden the church, and by the church I mean individuals, begin to put limits on God on what they will or will not give generously of. They begin to limit God. And so they, they're torn between this idea of generosity that he has for them, and, and really it creates problems within the church. And again, it, I'm not, it's not so much about the giving or what they gave or what Ananias and Sapphira gave or, or that, that whole tragedy. It's more about the heart condition of the church. Like Terry talked about earlier, what is my heart set on? What is my heart for? See, all these people came from the law that said you had to do this, right? Laws are, are there to keep us within constraints and say you can do this or you have to give this much, like taxes, like, I don't give just more taxes for the fun of it. Like, yes, above and beyond taxes. The law makes me give this much money. That's how much they make me give, and so I give. And so the new church, because they shifted from being under the law to being under the spirit, they saw something different. So under the law, it said, do not commit adultery. And under the spirit, it said... Don't even look at a woman with adulterous eyes. Under the law, it said, do not murder. Under the spirit, in response to the love of God with the fullness of our heart, it said, don't even speak, rock, don't even speak anger against your brother. The same thing began to happen in the church of generosity is, whereas before they were forced to give a certain amount of money, which I still think is a, was a good biblical principle, just like I believe the other ones are good. I also believe you should not commit adultery. But it went above and beyond to say, well, I'm going to shift from what the law tells me I have to do to now what my heart gets yeah. to do. And that I now get to, with the fullness of my life, worship the Lord. And more importantly, I take the limits off. Jesus was always trying to take the limits off. The rich man comes and says, I want to follow you. And he says, great, take the limits off. The religious man says, I want to follow you. And he says, great, take the limits off. Stop limiting what you will give me, but open it up. And so in chapter 5, we see this attitude of limits begin to kind of sneak in, and tragedy happens. But when that happens, the people fall on their knees before God. They humble themselves, and revival breaks out again. They have this little mini revival. So then in Acts, Acts 6, again, just building to where we are, because I think it's important, is that, again, revival's happening, works are happening. Uh, and by works, I mean miracles are happening, and good things are happening. But then all of a sudden... It kind of starts to shift bad again. And what happens is now, rather than putting limits to God, right? Saying, God, here are my limits on what, how much I'll give. Now they're putting limits on who they will give. So it shifts. So now there's a limitation not only on how much, but on who. And they begin to, to spurn. You have the Hebrews 
and, and they begin to spurn the, the Hellenistic Jews and, and really just forget about them. And here's the principle applicable to us today. And I'm just going to say it and I move on and hopefully no one has to be with me about this. Jesus never intended it for to be the government's job to care for the hurting and broken in our society. The law says you must be taxed as much to care for those in need. The Spirit says how much might I pour out of my thankfulness to the love of Jesus so that those who are in need might have what they need. And so in Acts 6, they begin to put those limits on. It's funny that some of these limits that have come reflect a lot of where the current state of the church is. Limits on really the extent of our generosity. Limits on who we really think should, should receive. And so in this moment, when the division starts, they make a good decision and they appoint seven people who are full of the Spirit. And this is where we're introduced to really our main character. So again, just, just follow this trend with me because Stephen, who will highlight, is also walking in this journey. So it's not like Stephen just drops in out of nowhere. He transfers in from another school. It's Stephen is a part of this journey the whole time. And so Acts 4, things are good. Then Acts 5, they put limits. Then they're restored. Acts 6, things are going good. They begin to put limits, then they're restored. So Stephen now sees, is selected as a, as a Holy Spirit-filled person who says, I'm not going to put limits on God in my life. If I choose to follow Jesus, I choose to follow him all the way. So we're in Acts 6, uh, verse 3 through 6. And I'm going to pray this morning, and uh, we're going to read scripture together and go through it. So um, you can flip if you want. They'll be on the screen. But let's pray together this morning. God, we rejoice that we get to be here to hear from your word. God, I praise you and thank you that nothing is wasted. God, in our life that we might feel like we are in the midst of difficulty, God, but you have a destiny for the people of your church and that nothing is wasted, that you can use all things for good, God. We thank you in your name. Amen. Let's read Acts 6, 3 through 6. It says, therefore, brothers, again, they're responding to this conflict, the, ne the neglect that has been given, uh, the widows um, uh, who are Hellenists, and they're responding. And they say, therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves, as the apostles talking, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, who we'll talk about in the coming weeks, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte of Antioch. They sent before them the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So Stephen is like the man of the early church. Stephen is... The guy that every pastor is kind of hoping comes in just full of the Holy Spirit. Just man or woman, just full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace. Come on, who wants to just be full of grace? That sounds good. Grace and power. That's a great balance. He was full of balance. He had grace. He had the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. And then we'll see him just saying he's performing signs. And what happens, though, in Stephen's life, we'll see, is that as he begins to move, and as God begins to move in him, the enemy begins to move around him. And oftentimes this will happen, and, and it freaks us out a little bit, is that when we step into God, when we step into what God's doing and God's moving through us, all of a sudden we start coming under attack. And we start experiencing things at a different level. Uh, sometimes in our life when we step into what God has called us to, we begin to feel really those arrows coming against us. Now we have a God who's all powerful, but I think it's when we step into what God's doing, we begin to see that doesn't make the enemy happy. The enemy does not like people who are full of the Holy Spirit. The enemy doesn't want you to be full of grace. He wants you to be mad and frustrated and isolated and alone. He wants you to see amidst your suffering hopelessness, not hope. And so when you begin to get the hope even amidst your life and what's happening in the tragedy, don't be surprised if the enemy puts up a fight. Yeah. Acts 6, 8 through 15, let's continue. It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. It says, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. So these are, these are the traditional uh, Jewish leaders. They, uh, and of the Cyrenes and Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia rose up. And disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit 
with which he was speaking. So they came against him. They began to argue with him, but they couldn't argue with the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, if you're a person that struggles with your words, if you're a person that struggles really, like, I just don't know what to say, when you're full of the Holy Spirit, allow him to work, release control, allow him to speak through you because his words are gonna be way better than your words. And we see all through scripture that when they testify with the Spirit, they win. So it works out. But verse 10 is said, or verse 11 says, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous word against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witness who said, this man never ceases to speak words against his holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So he was glowing. He he had the spirit upon him. He was sitting there. And as they begin to judge him and bring false testimony, he still carried the undeniable presence of God. And so uh, Acts 7, which is fantastic, but I want to read it all because it's 54 verses. <laughs> You're like, oh, thank you. It's like, all right, we're only an hour into my, you know, two and a half hour message. So tuck in. No. <laughs> um, but in Acts 7, what I love is Stephen doesn't give a defense of himself. He just kind of doubles down on the scripture. And he kind of gives Peter's message multiplied times two, times a hundred. And he's like, yeah, no, Jesus did say this. And I'm going all in and I'm going to testify to the goodness of the word. And so he begins to speak to the prophets and speak to the people of Israel and prophesy to them and share to them the great witness. And it says in seven, uh, Acts 7, 51, he calls them out at the end of his message. Just imagine if I ended the message this way this morning. Uh, you stiff-necked people. <laughs> no visitors would return. Uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom... You have now betrayed and murdered you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Turns out, shocker, they did not take this well. And basically what he's saying to him here is you are religious and you are wrong and you have killed every person who has come to tell you the good news. So you don't scare me because you haven't got it right for 2000 years. But I know the good news. Turns out they were a little frustrated. So verse 54, here's what happens. It says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So they're furious at him. He's surrounded by his enemies. He then has a revelation of God. He sees heaven open. And when he, they hear him say this, here's what happened. It says, but they cried out in a loud voice and stopped their ears. As I have a toddler, so I see this all the time when they don't want to listen. They just close their ears and they stomp their feet and go, ah! That's their response. I just don't want to hear it. So they respond in this violent, visceral, I don't know, furious, childlike anger. And it says they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Remember that. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out this dying breath, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I think this is a tragic story. And as I was praying through it, I was thinking, God, I feel like you're wanting me to come and encourage our church. But how can we be encouraged from someone getting stoned to death? How can we be encouraged from a death of an incredible man like, like Stephen? And I remember this quote. That fire does not make martyrs, it reveals them. That fire does not make stoning, does not make martyrs, it reveals them. 
See, what was revealed in Stephen's death is what was manifest and alive in Stephen's life. It's what he was about. It's what he was obsessed with, and that's Jesus Christ. What was revealed, even in Revelation, in his death was Jesus Christ. And God uses him for great things. And I believe that's why we can look at scripture, even though it's heavy and it's hard. It's hard to start a message on encouragement about death. But there's encouragement in here. And I believe that there's encouragement for you and I, even in tragedy. How can we be encouraged when we're really going through it? How can we be encouraged when it's real messy? How can it be encouraged when we're beat down, when we're impressed, when we're oppressed? When we're hurting, how can we be encouraged? Three things this morning that I see. The first thing is that Jesus is always with you. To the very end, Jesus is always with you. How often does it feel like you are alone in your situation, right? Uh, at work or at home or in the hospital or your day-to-day or in life and trial. So often we can feel alone in the things that we're facing. And, and it's almost hard to believe as we read in chapter 7 that God would be so visibly present in such a vile, awful thing. How could God and his presence be there while one of his servants is being executed? It says in 55, it says, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand. See, in his dying moment, he has this revelation of heaven. And he sees Jesus standing. And as Jesus is standing there, he's looking at Stephen. And I believe that he's looking at Stephen. And he's looking at us. And he's saying, this might be the worst suffering that you've been through. But you are not alone. You are not alone. And if you came into this place feeling alone, then know that you are not alone. That Jesus is standing there on the right hand of the throne. He's standing there and he's looking at Stephen in the midst of his suffering. He's saying, you're not alone. I've opened heaven. I've opened heaven so that you might see that you are not alone. That though the world is against you, I am with you. I don't know what your suffering is this morning. But my prayer is that you would get a glimpse of heaven. That you would get a glimpse of the fact that you are not alone. That in your health, that you've been carrying around this thing and and you came up the other week and prayed, but it's still there. And and there's this discouragement and you you feel alone. No one understands. And and, and I'm still suffering with this. And maybe I'm going to carry this my whole life. And and I just, I don't know. I'm frustrated and I'm lost and I'm alone. My prayer is that, that... God would reveal himself to you, that you would see the depths of the Father's love for you. You would see that Jesus loves you, that he has not forsaken you, that he has not left you. And though you are oppressed by the brokenness and the hurt and pain that exists in this world, that Jesus still cares for you. And he's not sitting, he's standing and he's looking to you and he's saying, I'm with you. I'm standing here. You're not alone. Some of you go into a workplace that is suffering, and my prayer is that you would get a glimpse that as you are standing in your place of work and standing for principles and standing for goodness and standing for hope when it feels like no one else is, that Jesus is standing with you. He didn't afflict you, and he's certainly not going to leave you. We serve the God, the same God that said to his people in Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Now we're not Israel, but we serve the same God who does not change. Therefore, his truth is still his truth and it's always going to be his truth. And I love that in this scripture, it says he's standing. This was one of my favorite things this week is that he's standing. You know, in all the Old Testament scripture, Uh, When David begins to apply in in, in the Psalms, he talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Psalm 10, 110, he's sitting, invites David. Psalm 118, he's sitting. Jesus, when he references, says he will ascend to, that he will be sitting, that he will sit at the right hand. Sitting at the right hand, it was a position of power. But there is something amazing about in this moment that Jesus stands. 
that Jesus isn't sitting, he's standing, because standing means a couple things. Not only am I with you, but it talks about in Scripture, when Jesus stands, when he rises, he brings his power, he brings his judgment, he brings his authority. So who's standing with you isn't just some guy down the street, it's Jesus who is all-powerful, who eventually someday will judge the earth, will remove all suffering, will remove all hurt, who you will be with for all eternity. He is standing with you. He is standing up he is standing in your corner and he's saying we got this he's standing in solidarity to say I've suffered I know suffering it breaks my heart that you suffer and I stand with you when you stand with somebody show solidarity when you stand when you're getting married you're standing with each other you're making a commitment when we stand in worship we're standing in unity it says we're together we're in this we're in this together I was reminded I went uh, with a friend of mine, and we went, uh, when we were living in Seattle, went to Vancouver to see a hockey game, and I'd never seen a professional hockey game uh, in my life. I'd never seen a sports game, I think, as an opposing fan in an opposing city, and I don't know anything about hockey. Turns out Canadians really like hockey, and they, they don't like when you wear the opposing team. <laughs> and so at one point, I am standing with my friend who said he'd been there before, but I don't believe him. And uh, we're standing there in what I'm gonna guess was uh, Chinatown, but I couldn't read any of the signs. And and he's standing with me and I'm standing there and we were very obviously at a place wearing a different city's uniform. We're out of place, we're lost. And I remember thinking, man, this is awful, but I'm glad I'm not alone. And in this moment, someone was standing with me and we walked together, and we made it out. Obviously, I'm here, and Canadian Canada is not that threatening. Um, <laughs> they're very nice. All the doors are unlocked. Um, it's great. You can go anywhere. Um, but in that moment, we're standing together, and I remember thinking, man, it would be great if he had been here before, because it's great if someone stands with you. It's even better if the person you're standing with has actually been there before. And so when we look at Jesus, Jesus is standing with us in our suffering and he's saying, I've been there before, even unto death, that I have experienced the full spectrum of suffering, that I have gone all the way to death. So even in death, you are never standing anywhere that I have not stood. And since you're standing with someone who has been there, take hope that you are not alone, that you are not alone in your work, that you are not alone in your family, that you are not alone in your health. You are not alone in this city. You're not alone in those moments when you're in your bed and you're trying to reconcile and you've memorized the ceiling fan a hundred times and you know every feature, but you still can't sleep. You're not alone because you stand with somebody who has been there. And so when you leave this place this morning, you do not leave alone. You leave with someone who has been there and has all the authority. You leave with someone who has stood on death and defeated it. That's the best person you could ever have in your corner. Psalm 139, it's one of my favorite psalms. I'm going to read it for you this morning. It says in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the depths, in the lowest place, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. For night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. I want to encourage you, church, that his presence is always with you. That Jesus is always with you. When you're in the highest victory, he's with you and he's cheering you on. God wants you to be victorious. He rejoices when you rejoice. When you're in Sheol, when you're in the depths, when you're in despair, when you say, surely the darkness is going to overtake me. Surely the darkness is going to cover me. Surely there's no way out for me. He says, even the darkest darkness, I can still see through. I can still get to you. I can still make a way to you. You are not trapped. You are not alone. And I know it's warm in here, but but I hope that you can wake up and just shake your neighbor and wake him up to this fact is that you do not leave here alone. You do not sit here alone. You do not go through what you go through alone. The people in, in our church right now who are sitting in hospitals believing for health do not sit alone. That God is with you. 
Joseph one of the uh, and it is warm in here. Anybody else warm? <laughs> Joseph, uh, the forefathers of our faith, sold into slavery, spent years suffering, spent years in captivity, cried out to God. He did well. He suffered again. I mean, his life would put most of us down. I know it would for me. Eventually, he rises to power. He moves up the ranks. And he's reunited with his family. And when he's reunited with his family, he speaks this to his brothers who threw him down a well and sold him to slavers. This is what he speaks to his brothers. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God turned to good. What you meant to break me actually ended up helping save all the people. What you meant, what the enemy moved in your heart to do for evil, God used for good. And the second thing we see in the same attitude of Stephen is what the enemy meant for evil. What the enemy meant for evil. God will use for good. In your life this morning, hear me say, what the enemy meant for evil in your life, God can use for good. Acts 8, starting in verse 1 says, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. His devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And it says this. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And preaching the word here, let me tell you, isn't preaching sermons. This literally means they went about just sharing what God was doing in their heart. Sharing the gospel they have received. And it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, remind you, remember, they had just been persecuted. They had just been scattered. It says, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many were paralyzed or lame, were healed. Remember, persecuted, scattered, the worst death, the worst thing the enemy could think of. And it says, so there was much joy in that city. See, the enemy has one end game, and I think we all know. The end game of the enemy is death, right? His ace is death. Death. Death is the end game. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. But what happens when the enemy kind of lays his hand out here on the, on the early church and brings his best plan, which is death? Well, it's the same thing that keeps happening when he does that to the people of God. Is that when he brings death, it says the church is scattered. And what I think is amazing is what the enemy meant to destroy the church is what God uses to fulfill the mission of the church. What the enemy meant to kill and destroy actually sent. See, the church was comfortable. And again, this is why I gave you the progression from Acts 4 to Acts 6. Because what we saw in the early church, the church is excited. Yeah, everything's great. November 5th, new building. I'm going to come every week. Right? That's like That was like early church. Now church has seen all these things begin to happen because comfort breeds complacency. It's why a church that started off as a move and a revival of God will split over carpet color. Yeah. People who are new to church are like, you can't be that petty. Trust me, it happens. Ask somebody that's been around church for a while, and they will say people will leave because of what the pastor wears on a Sunday. Because Jana's got too many holes in her jeans. Then all of a sudden, it's like everybody's leaving the church. Right? It's a whole thing. Because can I tell you, a church that doesn't move doesn't have life. Yeah. A church is like water. And water can stay stagnant for a little bit, and you're fine, but not very long. And all of a sudden, people start dropping like flies. 
Go out and find some just water around here that's sitting. See how long you last living on it. The church is like water. It's supposed to live. It's supposed to flow. It's supposed to go. It's supposed to start here, and it's supposed to go there, and it's supposed to renew, and it's supposed to change, and it's supposed to go. It's not supposed to be stagnant. So the church was stagnant. When it was stagnant, they started doing things like putting limits on what they would give, putting limits on who they would give to. All of a sudden, selfishness, racism, begin to creep into the church. And so the enemy thinks like, I got them. I'm going to kill them now. This is it for them. But what he means for evil, God uses for good. I, I think of the church kind of like this. I was researching some plants because I had heard this. But eucalyptus is one of these plants, and there's a few of them. There are plants that can only produce seed after a forest fire. There are plants that the resin around the pine cones is so strong that they will never produce. They will never reach their potential. They will never grow a forest unless there's fire. And I'm not saying to say God's bringing fire against you to make you grow. Don't. <laughs> we're not that church. But I'm saying that there are things in our life that were meant for evil that God can use to good. And what was meant to destroy us can send us. See, I believe so many things in our life, what we see as a setback, God sees as a setup because there's nothing that is beyond God. No experience in your life is wasted when the almighty God is alive and moving in your life. See, what the enemy meant for evil, God will use for good. The church saw the death of a man. God saw the birth of a movement. And it's true for you and I. I believe some of you this morning, God wants to turn what was your tragedy into your testimony. That you can begin to testify to what God has done and changed an opportunity that has developed. Some of you, you have your past pain that God wants to turn it into a future platform to glorify, to speak into people that I could never speak into. And somebody did something to you or you've walked through something in your body or in your life. And I, I can't speak into that, but you can. And so in this moment, Moment, God is saying what the enemy meant for evil that you thought was going to kill you and end you, I can use for good. I can use it for good. Trust me, what was meant to destroy you, I can turn into a greater destiny. I love serving a God who can take my mistakes and turn them into a mission. That's why even if you're in prison, has anyone ever done ministry in prison? I've done ministry in prisons a couple countries and, and, and you go in and God moves. How can God move in a prison? How can God move in a prison? Because what the enemy meant for evil, God can use for good. And you might not love where you're at or who you're there with or how you got there or the choices that got you there or the shame you feel for being there. But God is saying this morning, you know what the enemy meant for evil? I can use for good. Death is not your destiny. Death is not the end. We serve a God who defeated death. We serve a God that came up to the tomb of Lazarus and everyone's like, he's dead. It's over. And God said, it's not over. I'm about to glorify the Lord. I'm about to bring about a testimony. I'm about to call out the dead things into life. And what the enemy thinks is dead, I'm going to use for a greater testimony. Jesus rose from the grave, brings us in. Did you know this, church, that you have resurrection life inside of you? You serve a God who has defeated death. Therefore, when the enemy comes with all of the trials, even death, that you serve a God who is greater than that, that the world, yes, is full of broken things in the enemy, but that God can take even death with the enemy meant for evil and use it for good. Some of you, the enemy did a number on you. The enemy has made a really big climax. If this was your story and your movie and your art, he has made a climax of awful, a crescendo of terrible. And it feels like there is nowhere to go in this moment. But can I tell you, God's saying what you see is a setback, what you see as suffering, I can use to set up a greater miracle. That I'm with you. I have not forgotten you. And as you walk through this, your experience, your suffering, your victory, your cries, your hurt, your pain, if you would give it to me who's with you, who's standing like we said with you, that I could take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it to good. I can take even the dead things and use them for glory. Third thing this morning. Is everyone with me still? Yeah. Third, third and final thing this morning. 
God can turn your worst adversaries into your greatest advocates. And I hope I spelled all that right when I sent you that for this line. An adversary, it's like, that got me. Philosophy student, not an English student, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is what I love about Jesus, is nothing is beyond him. Even your relationships, nothing is beyond him. It's funny, we'll believe in a Jesus that rose from the dead, but we'll struggle to believe in a Jesus that can raise dead relationships. We believe he created the world and moved it and molded it in his hands, but for some reason, the person in our family or in our life and our things, it's just totally beyond. And I, I'm that person, so I'm self-convicting here. But we struggle with that reality. And so it begs our mind, do we trust God? Because I believe in a God, and I want us to believe in a God that can restore relationships. In Acts 8, it says Saul is killing people. And get this, if you're new to Acts, let me just give you some context here. Saul will eventually become Paul. So Saul, Paul, Paul who wrote a majority of the New Testament, who impacted the church, who, who changed the world. Can, we can say that, right? Paul changed the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you're looking up something in the New Testament, it's ministering in your life. You know who the Holy Spirit worked through to send that? Paul, Paul, Paul who, who was part of killing Stephen. Paul, who was Saul. Hey, we didn't get that. Somebody who killed somebody in our church shows up next week and then eventually becomes the pastor. Right? right? <laughs> we got that. Not only the pastor, but he plants 300 campuses. That guy. The guy who comes in and kills me and then becomes all y'all's pastor. That's Paul. <laughs> that is the journey that occurs. Because God can turn your worst adversaries into your greatest advocates. And this is why, because of the heart of Stephen, because of the heart of the martyr, that as he's dying, he cries out and he says, God, forgive them. God, take my spirit. God, do not judge them. And that Paul, as Saul, is there and he sees the revelation of who Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. And he's a part of this. And, and who does Stephen pray for as he's dying? He prays for Paul. And Stephen doesn't know this yet, but Saul, to become Paul, will be one of the greatest advocates of the church. But Stephen just believes he's praying for those who are persecuting him, which the Bible tells us to do all the time. Was Stephen's suffering wasted? I, I, I don't want to be too causal or, or saying ends justify the means here, but I think if, if Stephen were to look and see what Saul did, he would be grateful and thankful that he prayed for Saul. He said, God, would you forgive him? God, this is my worst enemy. I've never had anybody kill me, but I'm assuming that in the process I would not pray for them. But I hope that I might. But he says, God, would you be with him? Nothing is beyond Jesus. No relationship is beyond repair. If God can use an evil thing like the execution to bring about the transformation of the church, that he can use the things in our own lives. I'm going to invite the band up this morning. I want to encourage you to remember that you serve this kind of God. Because some of you got to go to work tomorrow. Some of you got to go home later. Some of you are maybe sitting next to this person. I don't know. Uh, but you have people in your life that are adversaries to you. Adversaries in your life. Adversaries of what's happening. And they're persecuting you. And they've done hurtful things. And they've said hurtful things. And it's like there's no way that I could ever forgive that person there's you have no idea what they've done to me i can't get past that i can't move past that but can i tell you that the enemy wants that to be our mindset because if we cannot move past that then if we cannot move to forgiveness if we cannot move to prayer then what we're doing is we're putting limitations on what god can do and what we see time and time again in scripture and in life and in history is that those who have done the most evil those who have caused pain when God gets a hold of them and God transforms their life, when God shifts and moves, the things happen. That they become some of the greatest advocates. Yeah. Let me tell you, when you encounter God, when you are in Sheol, when you are in the depths, you don't just come out and rest in normality and a levelness. When you are persecuting like Saul does and so zealous and so devout, when you realize the scope of your salvation, you are joyous. 
and you change the world. Never stop praying for those who are our adversaries. Jesus says, who needs a doctor more? Those who are sick or those who are healthy, right? God can change our adversaries into our advocates. And we got to go through our week believing that. We got to face our day believing that, that even the people that mean evil for us, God can turn to good. That nothing's wasted. That person in your life that hurts you, you're like, God, why did this happen? God says, I, I can take that. I can take that brokenness. I can mend it together. I can make something out of that. I can fix that. I can mend that. I can use that. That person that, that hurt you growing up, they were supposed to protect you, but they hurt you. And you hold on to that. God says, I can take that. I can mend that. I can use that. It's not pieces of them that are broken off and on the ground. It's pieces of us that get broken off by others and they're there. God says, I can use that. What the enemy meant for evil, I'm going to use for good because nothing in your life is wasted when your life is with God. Nothing. The pain you went through, the people that hurt you, God didn't do that to you. God didn't put that on you. God's not saying like, well, we'll see if they believe now if they really suffer as a child. God, God's not doing that. God is saying, nothing is wasted when we're with God. Nothing is wasted. That he's standing with us, that he's believing with us, that he's seeing us in our suffering this morning. He's seeing us when we're hurting. And he's saying, you know, what the enemy right now in your life is using for evil, I can use for good. Just trust me. I can use for good. Would you stand this morning? How can we be encouraged in a tragic story, right? Well, it's because all of us have faced tragedy or are in tragedy or are in suffering or have faced suffering or will eventually soon face suffering, right? People say you're either in a storm, through a storm, or about to go into a storm, right? You're just, you're always in this movement stage. So how do we come and gather and praise? How do we even work that? How do, how do we look at our life and say there's hope? Well, there's hope in Jesus. That in our darkest moments, in the times where you feel like the world has surrounded you, that Jesus is standing and he's proclaiming over you, you are not alone. And the first thing, again, I'm just going to reiterate this morning, you are not alone in this place. God has not forgotten you. What the enemy meant for evil, God can use for good. That some of you have suffered, but God's saying, hold on. What you see is a setback. What you see disqualifies you from a great destiny. I'm going to use and I'm going to glorify God. God's saying, I'm going to glorify myself with it. What the enemy meant to kill you and break you and destroy you. Man, I made you for something. I made you for purpose. I made you for hope. And you might be in the middle of suffering, but I'm going to do something with it. And just trust me, because what you can't imagine, what you can imagine isn't even close to what I can do. And Stephen in his suffering, could have imagined some people getting saved, but he could have never imagined the global movement of the church through his suffering. God's saying this morning to some of you, what the enemy has meant for evil in your life, I'm going to use for good. Do you trust me? And then again, even our adversaries can become our advocates when God moves. In your life, some of you are going to face or are facing or have faced some adversaries have spoken some things, done some things, been a part of still doing things to you that, that push against you. And you go back to those and say, you know what, God? I'm going to be like Stephen and I'm just going to give it to you. And I'm going to say, God, you have the power to turn this person in my family from the fiercest adversary of Christianity to the fiercest advocate to rescue him out of darkness, to rescue him out of the lies that surrounding him. Maybe some of you this morning have been an adversary to the gospel. And you say, I don't believe in that. That's not for me. Can I tell you, I believe that Jesus is already speaking to your heart this morning. And he's saying there's hope for you. There's life for you. There's life for your family. Nothing is wasted. You're going through something. Is it worth it? Let me tell you. Keep going because nothing's wasted. Nothing's wasted with Jesus.
want to speak to the heart of those here this morning who say, I need encouragement. I want to speak to the heart of those this morning who say, I'm either facing or have faced some evil in my life, some persecution in my life. And I'm praying that God would use it for good. That I don't want this to be my story. I don't want my suffering to be my story. I want it to be the platform to something great that God can do. I'm not stuck here. I'm not stuck in hopelessness. I'm believing in hope. Hope in my life. Hope in my family's life. Be encouraged to know that you are not alone. That hope is here for you this morning. I'm speaking to your heart this morning. If you felt alone, you felt oppressed. You felt that the world is coming against you. You felt that the enemy is trying to do evil in your life. Or you've suffered and you feel like, what, what is there for me? Is there any hope? I'm here to tell you this morning with every eye closed and every head bowed so that you might hear my words. That there is hope for you. That you are not alone. That this is not the end of your story. That the things that you think are dead, that God can resurrect. The things that you think are past that God can resurrect the family members that you think are too deep in another way that God can bring into the light that nothing is dead when God says it is not dead that nothing is dead when God says it's alive no relationship no family member no thing in your life no dream no hope is dead if God says it's alive so I speak to your heart by the power of Jesus Christ and I say receive the hope that you are not alone but that God has a plan for you that God has a hope for you. That God has a future for you. That God has a future for your family. That God has a future for this city. That God has a future for your dreams. That God has a future for your hopes. Even though you've been saddled with this sickness for longer than you can believe, God still says there's a hope for you. There's a life for you. If you would receive it this morning, would you just say, I trust you, Jesus, this morning. If you're one of those people, just say, I trust you, Jesus. I surrender to you. God, give me your hope. Remind me that I'm not alone. Remind me that I'm not here by myself. Remind me that I'm not stuck. Remind me that the things aren't dead. Restore to me that hope. If that's you this morning, you're saying, with every closed head, but I need that 